and welcome to the Dicer Screen Podcast. Ah! Oh, wow, that's a very robust <laughs> cry of battle. <laughs> Hi, I'm Randy. I'm Mike. And today we're going to be talking about the Rod of Seven Parts here on the Dice of Screaming Podcast, so welcome. And not just the Rod of Seven Parts, as in the relic itself, famous in D&D terms. We are going to be talking about the, the origins and history of it, uh, but we will be discussing the uh, 1996 boxed set edition of the Rod of Seven Parts, yes. as well as the relevance of the Rod of Seven Parts itself in terms of being a major factor in D&D lore. Right. It's, uh, as Ken Rawlson says, it's the untold story of D&D, and uh, there's a lot to cover here. So we're going to not only just talk about the box set, we're also going to talk about the Age of Worms adventure path. Correct. Dungeon Magazine, which utilized the Rod of Seven Parts, and we're going to give our critique and feelings about it. But first, we're going to turn to the casting of the Augury and then some call-ins. So, what's up on the... What did the Augury foretell for us, Mike? Well, now, some of these folks will have heard before. Uh, those who have stuck with us uh, know that, you know, uh, coming up in the... You know, as, as loaded into the hopper but not yet fired are uh, Birthright, uh, Spelljammer, Griffin Island, uh, Call of Cthulhu's Haunting... Uh, Griffin Mountain. Uh, sorry, Griffin Mountain. Yeah, yeah. Griffin Island was the Avalon Hill. We're, we'll talk about it, but we're going to uh, concentrate on the Griffin Mountain. Uh, but we also have uh, Al Kadim, uh, the you know second edition setting, uh, Appendix and Movie Night, and a uh, very interesting thing being added to the roster: uh, the Marches Adventure High and Dry for Traveler. Yeah, Traveler uh, second Mongoose. edition for Mongoose. Yeah, this is Traveler 2E Mongoose Press. Uh, well worth... I'm looking forward to this one because I am an avid Traveler fan uh, from back in the day and have not changed. Oh, and Spelljammer is in there in the mix. I maybe Yeah, we're probably going to do uh, Spelljammer uh, right afterwards because uh, it does... Re- I think Spelljammer needs to be taken on its own. Oh, uh, yeah, look. Uh, you know, there there was some discussion of, you know, well, reasons why we might not do uh, a proper look at Spelljammer, because I am not such a big fan of that. I, I never, uh, the whole uh, D&D in space thing did not quite trip my trigger at the time, but that doesn't change the fact that it was a big part of gaming, and it was a very large-scale campaign setting that a lot of people participated in, and it totally deserves coverage. Yeah, I so. think that uh, it had some missteps, but one of the big things I think that we'll bring up for that one is that it does do fantasy space probably better than just about anything. And that's an interesting category. If we talked about Space 1889, I think in the same vein we need to talk about Spelljammer in the same way. Oh my goodness, yes. Uh, Spelljammer is... I mean, it is to Space 1889. 89 as uh, Shadowrun is to Cyberpunk. Yeah. Okay, it's a much more magically active, uh, you know, diversely populated scenario. I mean, it, it's a much wider scope and scale. So, uh, a lot of things were possible in Spelljammer that just couldn't be done. Uh, totally worth our examination. So, whatever degree of interest or disinterest I might have had. Uh, I'm still radically in favor of doing a session on it because it's, well, extremely relevant. 
Right. So we'll uh, save that for the podcast, but uh, just to let you know what's coming up. And also we have some call-ins uh, from our last episode and also from our Game of Thrones. So we're going to go right straight to Jason and his thoughts on our last podcast, Lost Tomb of the Bitchin Chimera. Take it away, Jason. Hey guys, Jason here. Really enjoyed your review of The Lost Tomb. You guys did a great job pointing out the in-jokes, and it was great hearing you enjoy, just enjoy yourselves, reminisce, and and accept that, you know, this was the module you were born to review. You know, as you know, I'm a big Dead Milkman fan myself, and, you know, I was very impressed. Impressed. I, I was happy with the module. I really was. I It, it exceeded my expectations. You, you know, I, I think it was more than just a cheap lip service and you, you worry about products like this because you think they're just you know it's just a marketing ploy and they're gonna slap this and that on it and you know call it good just re, you know take another module and add in a couple things and say it's the dead milkman thing but they, they really did a great job with this so anyhow looking forward to your next show take care all oh, right oh many thanks yeah that well thanks man uh were we born to do this well we were born to do a lot of things and we've kind of been disappointments to a lot of people and that. but you know <laughs> at least we lived up to something oh hey you it is only by you know, sheer grace that you were not subjected to an entire hour-long episode of just dead milkman karaoke uh on yeah. the dice are screaming it's, uh, the the self-control we had to exercise just to reduce the amount of riffing on favorite stuff that so much got left on that cutting room table where like, oh, all right, if I go there, we're never going to get out of this. Ah, super frustrating. <laughs> yeah. But it was still enormous fun. Even what was left was just, yeah, yes. the artwork of the rock gull with the mohawk and just, I don't know. I, I just giggle every time I see it. Yeah, um, I can't glow enough about the artwork because, I mean, as as you mentioned in the call, uh, you know, they really did a nice piece of work on this. They they could have like slapped their name on something that was not well put together or was like extremely slapdash. The potential for a, an event like that was totally there, but instead, uh, the entire product was put together really nicely. You know, and I mean, right, and we're used to being attention. marketed to. Yeah, I know. You know, and just being ripped off all the time. So it's nice to see some. It's a gamer fan... hazard. You know, it's nice to see some fan service that actually delivers for a change. Yeah. Oh, not to mention their charitable actions and things like that. You know, they they put money to good use uh, over at the the Dead Milkmen. So the some of the proceeds from that module went to noble purposes. Uh, but yeah, it was totally worth it. Yeah. So thanks a lot, Jason. Man, that was really cool uh, to hear that you enjoyed it, and I'm just glad that uh, while we were probably having a bout of mental illness, that you at least kept up with it. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> and next up is about. Do we have anything else? No. <laughs> next up, Joey Richter. He also has something to say. We uh, put him separate because we want to address what he had to say as well. So take it away, Joe. Dudes, I loved your Dead Milkman episode. That was so much fun to listen to. Really, that was awesome. I listened to them some. I think they're cool. They were never really my, you know, my thing. They're a little before my time in punk. I'm more of like a 90s West Coast punk guy. So like no effects. That's if no effects put out a role playing game. 
I would put out an episode just like your Dead Milkmen episode. So seriously, that was just a real a real pleasure to listen to. Thanks for that, guys. I hope you're both well, and I will talk to you soon. Peace out. Hey, uh, much agreed. I, I understand that uh, yeah, slight difference of era, but I, I was also fond of the era of No Effects too. I was especially fond of the song Three on Speed. Yeah, we had to listen to it before the podcast, so... Yeah, I, I couldn't help myself. I mean, literally, as soon as I thought of it, I was like, I have to play it. I have no impulse control. Ah, now! Uh, but, yeah, no, that was... That 90s punk zone was like that last beautiful gasp. Uh, with You know, Rancid was really big in like 88, 89, 90. Uh, Green Day had not quite happened yet, but shortly after that, Green Day got big mm-hmm. in the 90s. Uh, there were some great like end of the punk era things going on right then and there. I really enjoyed that zone too. I mean, I'm I'm much more fond of the stuff that was like the protein causes of punk. So if, if you roll the clock all the way back to uh you know the the Ramones and the Sex Pistols and uh you know, well, all right, the Clash, all right? Cause, sure. You know, it's a slightly yeah, I'll take Devo over Clash, but that's a personal preference, but I'm going to throw them in the mix there because... Good on you. A true alternative right to their the core of their rotten little hearts. Uh, mm. There was nobody else like them. That, to me, measures a band. Are we not men? Or are we Devo? Are we Devo? So, yeah. Uh, but glad you guys liked it. and you know, yeah, It was a fun episode to do. Yeah, it was... Uh, it was probably a cry for help. <laughs> <laughs> when you really break it down, you got to look at it from a long term. I believe that they should do a second module. <laughs> and then this one, the characters must face off against Beelzebubba. Oh, yeah. With his multi-hit dice brush hog. His stinking <laughs> cloud from that cheap-ass cigar. Beelzebubba. <laughs> Beelzebubba. All right. So, uh, Liren has something uh, to say about oh. our Game of Thrones. And so, we're just going to turn that in. And also, some of the... Uh, Black we picked up on some other podcasts, so mm. take it away, Liren. Hey guys, it's Liren from Updates from the Middle of Nowhere. I am just waking up and I turned on your episode about Game of Thrones. And while I have never read the books or watched the show, because I'm really not a fan of violence, uh, I wanted to address a couple things you said in your episode. First of all, um, I am the same age as Randy. Who knew? What a great you know, year to be born, right? So anyway, happy birthday soon. <laughs> and the other thing I wanted to say was, you know, it's very true that it's not an institution, but I also think that, um, I don't know why I just said, but, uh, I, I, you have every right to do what's right for you and to talk about what you did that was right for you. And I'm happy to hear you guys talking about it and not apologizing just because some people got offended. So you don't owe anybody an apology. I think they need to take a really hard look at their own personal biases. All right. Hey, and thanks, Laren. I uh, hope you don't mind us putting this on here. I just, uh, you've been a real help and uh, just oh, been an great. absolute peach helping us out. We, I really wasn't aware of a whole lot of the flack until you'd brought it up. And yeah, as we uh, stated previously, we talked about this plenty that uh, nobody owed us apology. And Mike was just... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't think anything in the content there. It's not as though we would never apologize for something. If, like, even for an instant, I believed that something we had done was 
uh, first erroneous, uh, you know, and or poorly thought out, and, and two, harmful. Uh, if it met those couple of thresholds, then yeah, I would totally apologize at the drop of a hat. But for an explanation of, you know, who we are, how we felt, uh, where we came from, and where we saw things going, uh, no, there was nothing in there that would merit uh, issuing an apology. So, you know, I mean, we're, we're sticking with it. We're standing by where we... Yeah, and thank you for your Where support. That's really nice. We share a birthday, uh, birth year. and uh... Oh, and also, uh, on the Game of Thrones thing, I kind of understand your hesitation. Yeah. Because if you do not like uh, violent endings of you know, beloved characters, by all means, do not watch that. Do not watch it at all. Uh, because if I can say one thing uh, <laughs> about Game of Thrones... Go into it loving nothing, because all that you care about and love will be torn from you. <laughs> well, in kind of the defense, not that it needs any, the fact that I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Not what he was trying to, the author's intent is to show what a brutal age it was. Yeah. And, you know, uh, it's, not a, it's not an easy uh, read or watch, so however you put it. So, no, yeah, no, no, uh... No need to worry about that. So sorry that it wasn't in your bailiwick, but hey, uh, glad to at least you caught your attention. So, again, a- thanks a lot, Liren, for all your support. Yeah. And, and you are a gem, you're a true treasure. So, thank you for being one of our listeners. And uh, thanks a lot to everybody else who gave us support to that little fracas. And we're putting it behind us. I still see that somebody's still carrying it on. And I just kind of. They're trying to bait us into a debate. And I was like, nah. Here's us still kind of talking about them, but peripherally. And I'm just going to be like, yeah, Yeah. you can keep carrying it on. We said what we said, and we meant what we meant. Yeah, I mean, this is not like... uh, in A debate would be, you know, what do you think the motivations behind the, uh, you know, the Enlightenment era uh, change of you know, views regarding man's place in the universe and religion's role. Yeah, you could have a debate. Uh, well, the term is sea lion. You know, I, I heard you say something bad about sea lions. Would you care to defend your point on that? No, I, I, I just don't like sea lions. Yeah. Well, why don't you like sea lions? What have they ever done to you personally? I, I just think they're kind of, uh, yeah, I, don't, I can't really define it. I just don't like sea lions. Yeah. So I'm going to sit here and just talk to you until you tell me reason why you don't like sea lions. Sorry, because sea lions, I don't have dude. To. Sea lions, dude. I told you. you, don't, you know. so, if you're familiar with the comic, to. yeah, you know what I'm talking about. All right, so we're going to turn to onto our topic. Just get right into it right now. So, yeah, yes. we're talking about the Rod of Seven Parts, and here we are being that old school blood. Now, the Rod of Seven Parts originally appeared in Eldritch Wizardry back in the day. Way back, this you know, like we're talking white box, the the little tiny, you like made it in our freaking garage. Uh, you know, we put the staples in it by hand. <laughs> we had to borrow time on the copier at work to get this project off the ground. That is how far back this goes. Yeah, nineteen seventy six is the era. And it was a centerpiece of a story concerning a great war between law and chaos. And they kind of named the Wind Dukes and the Queen of Chaos was in there. Which, now, worth it, mentioning, they, they didn't mention a lot of background for a lot of different magical items in early D&D. Okay, most of, most of the items and the artifacts did not get a lot of storytelling in the background. Yeah, and 
Eldritch Wizard, to be fair, was the first time they put artifacts like the Wand of Orcus. Yeah. Um, and others. Uh, geez, uh, Queen Alyssa's Marvelous Nightingale, the Mask of Jody. They were all in there. And this was the first appearance of artifacts. And at the time, it was pretty shaking. Uh, because people were getting tired of just magic items. And, you know, here was a way to give a magic item with a story. And that's what they wanted, is each artifact had to be set deeply in the campaign. Now, of course, it explains that uh, a lot of people think that the Rod of Seven Parts is in the world of Greyhawk. And, of course, it is reflected in that. But it doesn't solely reside there. And because the story of the Rod of Seven Parts, as it's known later as the Rod of Law... It was used in a great battle to defeat Mishka the Wolf Spider, <laughs> the Prince of Demons, and it was broken into seven fragments during the conflict, and the seven individual pieces are scattered across the world. So, right there is the great story of a grand start of a campaign, and that each one of the rods has its own names and effective story and powers. Now, in the early D&D... You had various types of campaigns going on, so they didn't flesh them out, and they wanted to keep, because uh, they knew people would be buying all the supplements, all the players. So they kept the magic items, especially the, uh, well, with the magic items, the secret was out, but with artifacts, they wanted to keep each DM the sole arbiter of what the powers of these items were, so no player could just figure it out. Like, if I do this, this, and this, it'll work. Yeah. And, uh, you know, or, oh, I just pick up this piece. Okay, great. I cast Fireball seven times a day now. <sighs> now, I got to hand it to the DM's Guide, uh, which by then had polished everything up and included a wider range, or a wider range of artifacts, both extremely right. powerful it was and less still powerful. the same. It was still gotta the same formula. It was filling the blanks exactly. to each DM's campaign. And they really, I mean, they, they learned new tricks along the way, but they were still using the same format. And you know, like the, the DM guide, it was one of the things that in the first edition DM guide, I remember most. And it's a very half fond memory. I mean, the Rod of Seven Parts was there amongst those other famous artifacts. Now, I had not been, I did not have a copy of Eldritch Wizardry. I had never seen a copy. Uh, but, you know, for a kid reading a DM guide for the first time, and here are these marvelously described artifacts, uh, these relics scattered around, the, you know, the globe that could be inserted into any campaign. Uh, and with the randomizing table uh, and cues to let the DM pick what powers you're releasing into your campaign setting, uh, or to just go ahead and roll them and generate them as randomly as possible and like let the chips fall where they may, uh, the options were there for you. And I, I felt then like, you know, wow, what a convoluted game changer-esque thing to do where like there are a lot of things in early D&D that just said, let the chips fall where they may. If this lands in the campaign by percentile dice, you know, like, oh, wow, you've got like three zero zeros in a row and now you're in the artifact table. Uh, your characters are only seventh level. They probably shouldn't be interacting with this yet. But screw it. That roll happened. We're just going to do this. Let's find out what it is. You got to tooth the Dalvernar now. And it also... It can put people to sleep, 
but it will give you acne that drops your charisma by two points. You don't know. You The artifact tables were this fabulous mystery, and there amongst them was the Rod of Seven Parts, the first time I saw it. Right, and well, a lot of people's first introduction, of course, was with the DM's Guide. All I'm doing is being a historian and trying to relate the first appearances. Now, in Mike's defense, he may remember it differently, but there is no random table for artifact distribution powers. No, you, it has, you uh, had to actually pick and choose, so they were under Roman numerals and. No, I just counted the total number and then worked out. The right, and you can uh, right you any good DM with a eyes capable of seeing lightning and ears capable of hearing thunder can make a random chart. The point was is that you were encouraged to use some thought and come up with your own pick and choose on those tables that gave you whatever it is that uh, you were looking for, like a random case of acne. <laughs> like, okay, I, I guess. Well, like this. Uh, like, oh, and this is not just that. Uh, this is. It's like, like puberty all over again. Scorching acne. Th- this is like six hit dice of acne. Oh, well, that's six hit dice again. <laughs> so, yeah. you so, Somebody like, you tell a wizard to cast Clarissal. Anyway, pulling it back in. Well, Rod Seven Parts initially lent itself right away to an idea of a great campaign. Like, what would a campaign to assemble the Rod of Seven Parts look like? And so in 1996, TSR decided that they would let us know. And Skip Williams provided a wonderfully illustrated and fabulously well-apportioned box set on a prestige format to tell us exactly what assembling the Rod of Seven Parts would look like in a campaign. And so we uh, got to know more about the Windukes, uh, which we were known as uh, the Vati at the time. Yes. Uh, they were given a fuller name and... Powerful extraplanar beings dedicated to law, order, and reason. Not necessarily to good per se, although some were, but... Those were esoterics they were unconcerned with. Yeah, absolute representation of law and orderliness. Yeah, and it fits well with the cosmology of D&D is that it first started with just law, neutrality, and chaos, and then later came up with more ethical uh, alignment axes of good, neutral, and evil. Yeah. Nonetheless, uh, they were, in the early states of D&D, you were just law, neutrality, and chaos. And that was very more cocky. And, of course, the Rod of Seven Parts resembles that. Um, it resembles that remark. It was, you know, a a, a tool uh, intended for a very specific purpose originally. Yeah. Uh, but to prevent that tool from being corrupted or from, you know, falling into the wrong hands, you know, once its task had been theoretically fulfilled, uh, it had the uh, innate nature. It was designed to break into many parts, and those parts would go as far away Well, that from was actually an accident. Um, it was used by the uh, Winduke general to uh, slay Miska, the wolf and spider. when he struck him with it, it burst into seven parts. Yeah. So, But it's, it didn't slay him, but mortally wounded and imprisoned him in the abyss. And so the mantle of demons, which set a whole different task in, but we'll get into that in a minute. But, yeah, the seven parts, you know, basically... Uh, not necessarily a plane shift per se, but they they all go to different places. They could go to other planes if you wanted them to, and but in this one, uh, it starts off and 
Here's one of my basic criticisms. I'm just going to start out right there is that the box set doesn't strongly root it in any campaign world. And I think that is not necessarily an intent, but a one of practicality. There were many campaign worlds at the time, and whether or not you wanted to have the Rod of Seven Parts was a personal choice as a DM. So they presented a fairly generic but easily transferable set of placeholder names and areas. Of course, you could take them on their own as well. But you start out with getting one of the pieces of the rods just falls into your hands, and they provide you a different way to get started. And then this sets in a um, motion a quest to start assembling the rods as the Queen of Chaos starts to take interest in you. And, of course, she's not in the story, but her presence is felt nonetheless. And oh. so now you're in a grand, uh, epic campaign suitable for high-level characters. Now, Oh, yeah, and this was, the box set was like three booklets, uh, not to mention various art supplies, right. maps, and details, and things like that. Uh, lovely art displays to give mm -hmm. people a, a a visual element to uh, recognize for their players, just to put up and go, okay, this is what this thing that we have only read about looks like, uh, and you know the the beings from this extra planar dimension, they look like this. So they also named it, uh, because when you put each the given in Latin, it's ruat. Oh yeah, the individual parts of the rod each had a the Latin word on them. Yeah, Ruat, Calium, Fiat, Justina, what is that? Justitia, Justi Lex, and Rex. Uh, and they make up a Latin phrase that translates into, Though chaos reign, let justice be done. Behold, law is king. And that's pretty cool right from the get-go is that, you know, you're using an archetypical Latin phrase to spell out law is king, so... Um, and each piece has unique powers. And then on top of that, as pieces are assembled, there is Bonus additional powers power. that are unlocked. And of course, each use of the rod, because it's fragile, if you use some of the major powers, there's a chance the whole thing will fly apart and <laughs> you got to restart back over. So, it, <laughs> yeah, you definitely seen there was there's a dealing with power gamers right there. Was uh, the DM smiling face like, oh, I use the major power of casting fireball seven times a day. Or uh, roll percentile know, dice. Like, but automatic four. death spell on my enemies. You know, just, uh, well, okay. <laughs> roll percentile dice. You rolled a three. Uh, well, I'm afraid to tell you that you cast this, you use the rod, and then it all the pieces fracture and fly apart and disappear, leaving only one behind, the one that you were holding. <laughs> well, doggone it. <laughs> it's like you're just trying to screw with us on purpose. Yes, I am. Yes, yes, I am. <sighs> Proudly. But yeah, that. <laughs> but you, um, you find that uh, as the quest starts to go, that the rod was so potent it could not have been foreseen by the Windukes that they wanted just anybody to get it into their grubby little mitts. And so there are several quests where the Windukes themselves make appearances or test the metal of the characters to see yeah. whether or not they're capable of having it. And you can wind up with... One of the nice facets of this campaign setting is that it, it was a little more 
uh, multi-dimensional than some of the other similar products of the time. In fact, uh, it was one of the only campaign length things uh, that was specific. Okay, uh, there were campaign length settings, things like that, but you didn't really so much have like a super module that like this, this one module and your party are going to have a relationship all the way from the beginning of your career to the end. There were not a lot of those at the time, and that has become the template for a lot of modern releases. They're, they're meant to, like, okay, you can play in this campaign setting uh, on this path for a very long period of time. There were multiple ways you could go in the Rod of Seven Parts, uh, and having an oppositional or a positive relationship with the Vati, the, the Wind Dukes, who uh, obviously had a vested interest in the Rod, the relationship you had with them was a major factor. You know, where where is this going to go? Because a, a, a powerful oppositional relationship with the Vati, that, that's going to be a tough one to overcome. Because they were not small opponents. <laughs> that could be a big stumbling block. Right, and as you go through and you go, um, some are dungeon delves, some are, yes, in uh, sequestered in various places, protected heavily by law in other wards, which... Not going to give big spoilers on this one, okay? We're, ju we're just going to let... The, it, honestly, for those who want spoilers, I, I'm, I'm going to interject and mention uh, Nerd Immersion Plays on YouTube mm -hmm. uh, and Iron Keep Chronicles. Uh, they have done, or, or are doing... Uh, the Rodison yeah. parts. They have drawn material from that. So it's out there to be seen if you want it, but we're, we're not like giving away the keys to the kingdom on this one. Right. I think for me, the strongest part was the cloud, getting the third piece from the cloud giant clan who were uh, enslaving these cloud dragons and cloud dragons were one of those monster manual two uh, cloud dragons neutral. Um, and they're both fighting against each other. So you could side with either one and, you know, you could kind of play a, a big a monster slaying bash, you know, basically a murder hoboing expedition, <laughs> breaking and entering into the giant's keep and slaying them all. And you could have fun with that, or you could, uh, you know, uh, work with the giants and get rid of the dragons and do the same thing against the dragons as well. So there's a lot of different, <laughs> the way that it approached both sides of that was interesting. So, you know, you could just basically also go, do a third or fourth option, which is, you know, find your own way in. If you had lawful, neutral, or chaotic players, I mean, you could pick the path that you wished to choose. I mean, you know, which which crowd do you want to run with? Which crowd do you want to seek alliance from? Or which crowd do you want to just... Yeah, you could take the traditional way. Oh, it's a bunch of neutral, evil cloud giants being jerks. Okay, well, let's bash them down. Right, take them out. And that's what adventurers do. But... At the same time, you could also polymorph yourself, use uh, uh, improved invisibility, and get in and you know steal it for yourself. Hey, yeah, whatever. You can Ocean Eleven it if you really feel like it. Honey you know? heist, man. Yeah, you know, honey heist. <laughs> We're gonna be covering that sometime. I'm just warning you. <laughs> it's totally gonna happen. Bears, dude. Thieving bears. That's right. You gotta steal that honey. All right, so. Yeah, we're not going to give away because it, it's in depth. The the, uh, the climax ends with you going to the abyss and fighting Miska, hopefully with the fully assembled rod in hand. And it's a pretty tough fight, I will say. And it's worth noting that 
one of my other detractions is, is as the rod uh, is assembled, they give you a kind of baker's dozen list of things that can be happening in the campaign world as the incursion of law or chaos becomes more prominent. The use of the rod now is imperative. But this wasn't as well spelled out, I think, in the supplement as it was intended. It might have been for space issues, or it may have been more left up to the DM's imagination. But I think a greater emphasis could have been placed on it. And I'm going to give it as a counter to this, the Age of Worms adventure path, where the Rod of Seven Parts enters in. You find the first part in pretty much the opener of that adventure path. And it does not become the main part of the campaign until later, where you learn the relationship between... Uh, the Windukes and the Forces of Chaos, and of course, Chaos, the what the the titular villain yes. of the Age of Worms is about, and you use it against him. Now, of course, now when you only assemble a, a little bit of the rod, but you could go at the end of the campaign of that to go find the other pieces, and I think the rising threat of the resurgence of the, or return of Chaos. And this, his <clears throat> much dreaded Sions of Cuss. Oh, yeah, the, the, the Sions, the Sons, whatever you want to call them. Uh, just tor horrible, nasty zombies that when you hit them, uh, their green fat worms drop on you and they burrow into your skin and transform you horribly into another son of Kios. <laughs> thus spreading the contagion and the horror. Yeah, yeah, there's a family you don't want to be adopted into. Like, I'll stay an orphan, oh, thank you Oh, you're going to become one eventually. Worm food. <laughs> but you use it against them, so uh, finding that you have the rod, a piece of the rod, and you can use it against them, and so assembling the three pieces is essential to having a in to fight them. But, of course, it's not required. But at the end, you have a partially assembled rod. So, you know, the impetus is there. Let's, let's finish this up. And, of course, uh, the Prince of Demons and other things is mentioned in there. Like The Prince of Demons that most would think of would be in Dungeons & Dragons. Demogorgon. But, of course, you find out why Miska or Demogorgon inherited from Miska because Demogorgon was a interloper. But that's <laughs> a story for another time. The but there's associated lore with that. And that's what makes it, for me... A little bit more interesting is because there's a bigger threat entering into the world, and now you have to turn to ancient weapons of antiquity, which is perfectly acceptable for the place of the Rod of Seven Parts in a campaign. So, in you know, in that retrospect, when you look at the Rod of Seven Parts and its whole, uh, when you put a artifact of that level into a campaign, you immediately start inviting people. To start jumping at that, like, hey, we're just going to do this. But putting this route together brings back two foes who have long settled their disputes in almost a fierce victory against one another. Yeah, I mean... And you're inviting them you to re-enter the world. Yeah, it's something of a <clears throat> mixed blessing, okay? You might be settling things once and for all, but just by the act, you know, unknowingly, of having you know moved through this quest and assembled the parts... You've kind of called back into being the the beings that uh, ceased to be a part of the cosmology because of their conflict, uh, and you you pulled them back into this, which probably better to settle it at that point because you yeah really you might wanna... not want their attention because the Windukes may seem <laughs> well they may be, seem to be the more heroic members, but they are not necessarily. 
creatures that you of such high philosophy of law, the absolutism, and their extreme views, doesn't necessarily make them very friendly. Yeah, they're they are that perfect example of the mixed bag of law and order worship, where somebody's like, "Oh, I'm so glad the Vadi took over. I have always wanted this level of perfect law and order. In fact, I am so happy with this right now." Your voice is outside the recommended level of modulation. You are in violation of our perfect order. <laughs> Me? <laughs> but I love this place. Extremes of emotion are, are disharmony. Yeah, you know, just it, it's the be careful what you wish for event. Now, they yeah. are the less horrific, obviously, because you, you start to run with the demon crowd and it's obviously not. Well, that's that's not going to end well. It's a great after party, but uh, <laughs> you might not want to be around for all of it. Just going to say, leave early. Yeah, leave early. <laughs> oh, man. And <laughs> agree to nothing. <laughs> no. Uh, <clears throat> oh, if you want to know more about the body, I, I also recommend uh, the uh, YouTube D&D Lore by A.J. Pickett who does a terrific job going into oh, yeah, really yeah, considerable yeah. background detail. I mean, the guy puts terrific time and energy in uh, to filling in those blanks, you know, so that the histories of of certain monsters, and it, he had a marvelous chapter on the Vati, uh, which, like, really went through almost all of the knowledge available from various releases regarding them. Uh, because there are multiple sources on this. I mean, it, these things got fleshed out in the Rod of Seven Parts tomes. but uh, Right, and that's the beauty of the whole idea of this. From a pretty much two small paragraphs in Eldritch Wizardry. All of this spun forth. Yeah, all this lore. And, you know, from... That spans multitudinous sources and volumes. It's incredible that people took these little snippets and made much more of them. And that's one of the things when people talk about the ideas inherent in gaming as touchstones for the greater parts of the imagination. This is one of the examples where just small things just touched off a much larger effect than their initial impact would have you believe. I yeah, mean, nobody would have expected it to have gone that far. No, I don't think the original creators like would have been... It spawned a mega-module campaign setting event and like a book. Uh, you know, it was involved in, uh, you know, a second campaign setting level thing, the Age of Worms. Uh, it just that, Yeah, and the, as a seed lore about the title of Prince of Demon. What does that mean? Yeah, and how did it transfer from Miska to Demogorgon to others, and how what there's different types of demons? They're form the ones from the Queen of Chaos, which represented not just a singular being but multiple beings in one. You know, it's just wow. Okay, so yeah, you yeah. can get as deep in this as you want, and it's something that is incredible from the fact that just there's small little snippets, and much more is made of them, which brings me I I start to feel oh strange. What wait? What's happening? Uh, Oh, this is disconcerting. I don't like this. Ah, the arcane eye has settled its gaze upon you and drawn you forthwith. And focuses its attention on small projects throughout 
the gaming multiverse. And so now your awareness has been unveiled. And now uh, we're going to focus it on John Brazer Enterprises. Hmm. John Brazer Enterprises. Now, hey, this this is pretty cool. Somebody after my own heart here is that working in, uh, amongst other things, uh, the Traveler setting for 2nd Edition, 1st uh, Edition Pathfinder, 5th Edition D&D, and 13th Age, which that's a new one on me. I just learned about this because... Yeah, um, it, uh, 13th Age is a very worthy uh, game system. It's uh, for people who may be playing Pathfinder uh, Classic a little too crunchy and 5th Edition or maybe a little um, too off the cuff. 13th Age is pretty much that Goldilocks zone between the two. Really? Yeah. And, and of course, the Traveler role-playing game, it may be uh, focused more on... Their focus at John Brazer is more on perhaps uh, the second edition game, but here's a dirty secret. What's good for the second edition is good for the classic Traveler. There's very little difference between the two. Yeah, structurally, uh, there is not a very large degree of difference. So, like, the, the savvy DM can harvest yeah. terrific material from these supplements and move them back and forth from edition to edition. Yeah, but John Brazier is currently having a sale of their Die 66 compendium. So uh, during this time of the podcast, the first day here that'll be out, it's probably over by tomorrow. So uh, if you're just listening to this today, that is probably the time to get it. It's half off, so go to RPG or drive through RPG and grab yourself a copy of that. For cheap, you won't be disappointed if you play Traveler quite a bit. Oh, yeah, which I'm rather keen on it myself. But, but this this dirt disconcerting place we're in. So this is where you go when you drift off on the Arcane Eye? Yes. Oh, Until man. you're dispelled. And I don't so... like it here. I, get us home, dude. <laughs> I, I dispel the Arcane Eye and return you back to your normal closed-eye reality. Yeah, there was no Mountain Dew dispensary there. Oh. So, I mean, it's Lord not a good that. place. That was so, that was not okay. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I was, I was I right here all the time. We were just, it was just quiet for a moment. I, I remember it all. It's terrible. Oh. You, don't, you don't want to. What do you remember? <laughs> it started with a bright light. Oh. Well, maybe <laughs> it always just... ends with aliens and probes. Uh, <laughs> so maybe we should just move on. So yeah, uh, going back to the Route of Seven Parts and, of course, Paizo uh, doing the Dungeon Adventure Path uh, Age of Worms. And also leads a little bit into the Savage Tide. Uh, it It's it's a unique uh, view on how the multiverse of D&D really affects plays into itself and returns almost uh, threefold back in as it makes a full circle with as much lore. And I mean, just, I don't mean to be uh, too backwards looking, but did those guys who wrote that stuff back then even understand what it was that they were talking about? Like, hey, I'm just going to write this bit about the Queen of Chaos. That sounds pretty cool. Like, maybe they were envisioning a more cocky and Ziambarge, the Queen of Swords, or an Ariok-type character, gender-shifted or something, as if Ariok has a permanent gender. Yeah, I mean, you know, they don't. I mean, but, Otherwise, the word chaos does not mean what it used to, you know. <laughs> I like chaos when it's fixed, rigid, and absolute. Well, then you got problems, son. Uh, yeah, I think you're in for a big <laughs> disappointment here. 
So, <laughs> did they no. did they know that this was going to happen? It would be kind it. of fascinating to, to know that uh, what they thought. But you know, yeah, they're not with us as much. In there's a few of them left, but not many. Oh, uh, I I doubt anybody at that time could have guessed what was going to happen. It worked out extremely well for them, though. I mean, it also spawned a book, uh, you know, like a story that yeah, which that was Douglas Niles, though. Uh, as opposed to Skip Williams, who who did the, you know, camp se- campaign setting and box set that is so much, you know. Yeah, I had a uh, hardback of that. Ah, really? Yeah. Charming little story. I mean, it was actually pretty cool that well, Douglas the, the two uh, main protagonists were uh, halflings. So. Ha! Oh, man. <laughs> halflings get a boomstick. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Well, halflings even his... Uh... <laughs> It erstwhile uh, longing of a mate of a cleric, so of law, so yeah. Oh, turns out that you know that's the thing. But yeah, it's it. I, I say quaint. It's look. It was a great little story. Greetings, and, there, last. Do you have any chaos in you? No. Well, well would some, you like some then? Ah, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Good I'm old a, Irish joke. All right. Yeah. So. <laughs> You can recycle them forever. All right, but yeah, it, it's a great thing. So if you can find a, you can find a copy of it on uh, Drive Through RPG, of course, and uh, you can get it printed out for you for a pretty cheap price at uh, Lulu and or other places. And um, you know, if, if you're longing for some old school deep dives into the lore and cosmology of D anD D, this is the module for you. So um, yeah, I gotta say it's got the chops. Uh, you know, aside from its obvious historical connection, which really was a major thing that excited us about this, uh, it does have enough flexibility to be, you know, easily. I mean, it was intentionally made to work into different settings as people wanted to, and uh, as nerd immersion in Iron Keep Chronicles have proven, you know, it, it can be brought yeah. into the current era and harvested oh. as material easily. Great ideas are timeless. Yeah, uh, good material. You can't go wrong with good source material. That's right. You know, it just, you cannot falter. It's a story that almost tells itself if you let it. And I think my one disappointment with it is that the initial box set just didn't do enough to give me that feel. My expectations just weren't met. Maybe they were a little higher, but that's kind of halfway between me being kind of a fussy and... Uh, high, a little bit uh, high-handed DM at times to being meeting the practical realities of putting a product out that could be useful for more than just myself. Yeah, and let's face it. I mean, if we're going to be really candid about ourselves here, um, in between 1979 and 1996, I mean... You know, we we'd already gotten a lot of gaming in. Okay, it just there was a very large amount of activity uh, in our gaming lives. So the huge volume of material that we worked through also meant that the bar that we set for what we considered freaking amazing uh, it was a ridiculously high bar. Yeah. By then, you know, by the time this module was released, we had already figured out what our absolute, like, oh my God, you know, whenever 
anything has these qualities to it, it is the best thing I have I have ever run players through ever. We knew exactly what we liked and that it made us a hard audience to reach. Okay, we couldn't we, we lost the taste for just anything will do it. You know, it, it it's tough. Uh, and you wind up doing a lot of rewriting and a lot of experimentation and a lot of alteration uh, to get the material you want into the campaign you're running. Uh, and that, that is kind of the learning curve. It is how DMs wind up developing the talent to uh, adjust published material to suit themselves. Uh, and you know what? In defense of being picky, you know, Finding that, well, like yeah, the term you used, the Goldilocks zone. Finding that Goldilocks zone of your own and customizing material to bring it to that state for you, that's that's a fine thing to cultivate. Yeah. I totally and support it. I'd always like to use the axiom, even if I feel it may have fallen a little flat, um, there were certain things I could definitely use, harvest from it, and repurpose, so... Yeah, so then it's the mark of a good supplement for everybody. And so, yeah, I think we beat that topic well to death. It's uh, laying on the ground, breathing out its last. So we'll dig a hasty grave and shove it in there (laughs) after rifling through its pockets for loose change and be on our way. So we hope you enjoyed this. And, of course, uh, you can get a hold of us on Twitter and, of course, leave a message on our Facebook group, The Dice of Screaming. So until next time, may the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya. Thank you.